Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. I'm excited for tonight's author for a couple of reasons. There's always my thing that anybody with local ties here to Denver, I'm always excited about because we have such a great depth and variety of talented, talented writers in this area. So I always love having people from with ties to Colorado. The second thing was I always love having a piece of history, that, especially those that we don't know very much about. Uh, when I start thinking about Korea t- tonight, I remember an uncle of mine fought in Korea, but it's like so hard to get anything out of him uh, other than, wow, it was really cold there. And that's all he said. That's all he would talk about. But I mean, what tonight's author did with uh, tonight's book, Devotion, is what he's done with his other, his previous two books, uh, Voices of the Pacific and Higher Call, where he creates a human story that's kind of laid over this amazing, amazing historical event that happens to be war. Please join me in welcoming Adam Makos. I appreciate it. It's um, quite an honor to be at our hometown bookstore. I'm up in Broomfield these days, so not too far away. I've been here about five years, and and I call Denver home. Uh, A lot of times... uh, People look at an author signing or an event like this and, you know, some author comes in and he signs the books and he moves on to his next one. For me, this is this is different. This is a chance really to say thank you to you because um, the new book, Devotion, took about, oh, seven years from start to finish. And um, you make it worthwhile. I mean, I don't do this. You don't do it for the money. You don't do it for the attention. You do it because you love a story. And you almost do it out of a sense of justice because you discover a story that is so good and so powerful and you just want to see it told. You want to see that hero honored. And in my uh, years of working in the military history field, I've had the good pleasure of meeting some really great heroes, Um, one of whom – well, there's there's several here – one of whom is uh, a pilot named Bob Brunson. Bob was a carrier pilot uh, during World War II, and he flew the Corsair fighter. And uh, he flew this aircraft right here. Can you imagine being a 20-year-old young man, 21, 22, and being handed the controls of a 14,000-pound machine and being told you're going to take off from a carrier? Okay, you can. anybody could take off. Well, maybe not. But then you have to land, and you have to land after a mission that goes two or three hours. And you come back, and the carrier deck is dipping with the sea, and it's rolling with the waves. And you have to go, and you have to put this little hook down, and you have to catch a wire at the back of this ship. And um, this Bob Brunson fellow, he used to do that at night. Uh, He was a night fighter pilot in World War II. So it's really special to have him here The story um, that I'll tell you about tonight, and I'm not going to tell you the whole story because I'm not going to spoil it for you. There's nothing like reading a book for the first time or watching a movie and um, getting that emotional experience. But I'm going to tell you a story that's set in the Korean War. And the Korean War is not a very popular war. Popular in the sense of, 
in popular culture. We haven't had a war movie about Korea since 1959, and that was Porkchop Hill, and that was starring a man named Gregory Peck. We, um, we form our opinions about the Korean War based on a show called MASH, and we see Captain Hawkeye Pierce, you know, kind of running around. And it's a little campy, and it's set in Southern California, and you see those dusty hills. And that's all we have to picture the Korean War. What, what can we think of when we think of the Korean War? Maybe you think of Marilyn Monroe singing to a crowd full of GIs, or maybe you picture the North Koreans, you know, doing something heinous. But really, what do you think of? So when we set out to do this book, it was a departure from the World War II story I had done. A Higher Call was a big World War II book. I mean, it was a no-brainer. The German fighter pilot who encounters a badly damaged American B-17 bomber just limping home over Germany, instead of shooting it down, he decides to spare it. And he salutes the pilot and he flies away. And the American pilot never forgets this. And 50 years later, he searches the world to find the German who saved his life, and they become best friends. How do you beat a story like that? How do you, how do you top that? Well, this is it. Um, December 4th was just a few days ago, and I was in Boston, Massachusetts, Concord to be exact, the home of liberty where the first shots of the revolution were fired. And I spent the day with a man I'd like to tell you about tonight. He's 91 years old. He lives with his wife in a small house uh, on the outskirts of town. And December 4th was a special day. When I got there from my hotel, I, I brought him a milkshake and, and I said, I said, sir, it's an honor to spend this day with you. And he said, oh, 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 that's, that's good. And I thought, oh my God, this, I know who this man is. I know what he did. 65 years ago today, he did something mind blowing. He did something incredible. And to him, it was just another day. But I thought, okay, it's not just another day. I mean, somebody's going to call this guy. Somebody, some state senator is going to show up at his door. Maybe uh, the local news. Maybe the local reporter. Maybe um, a marching band. If you know what this guy did 65 years earlier, you would expect something. We had a lot to do that day. We were signing books uh, for the Fisher House, a charity that um, provides a place for military families to stay when their loved one is in a hospital. And we had 150 books to sign. And so this man and I sat down at his kitchen table and we started. And the hours ticked by. He took a break for his nap. And the hours went by. And I took a break for dinner. And it got late at night. And we went down into his office. And we sat. And I had brought uh, a picture just like this. And I hung it up on his wall because he had the same old artwork. I've been working with him on a book for seven years, and he's had the same old print there, and it's sun faded. I said, it's time to put up something that's personal to you. And I took down his artwork, and I put that up, and we just looked at it. And I had to think, my God, it's December 4th, and the phone has not rung. The marching band never came. And that's how I'll begin this. This is a story, the story behind devotion. It's not just a great war story. I wouldn't put seven years of my life into something if it's just a good war story. Us killing them. Okay, how many did we kill? All right, we won the war. Let's go home. You tell a story like this because it's a great story of humankind. I mean, this is as good of a story as it ranks up there with, with the best of them. 
from the beginning of time. The man I'm talking about, his name is Tom Hudner. And Tom is half of the duo that, that makes up devotion. I'll tell you about where he came from. Tom came from the country club scene of New England. He was born, you might say, with a silver spoon. Uh, his family had been very successful during the Great Depression. They had a chain of grocery stores. And in the years just before World War II, Tom Hudner enjoyed the country club lifestyle. He was a true New Englander in that sense. He was expected to go to Harvard, and he was expected to inherit the family business, probably marry a Stepford wife and, you know, wear, um, wear a lot of plaid or whatever they wear. It's seersucker. Uh, and uh, that was going to be his life. But a friend of his in prep school, Andover Academy, when World War II came, this man said, I need to serve my country. And this man, as soon as he graduated, he went right into the Navy, and he became a naval aviator, the youngest in the Navy. And he went off and he flew in the islands. Now, he was a couple years ahead of Tom, so Tom just watched him go. And that man became the 41st president of the United States, George Herbert Walker Bush. So when Tom graduated, his grandfather thought, okay, it's Harvard time. No, Tom said, I'm going to the Naval Academy. And his grandfather went crazy. Tom wanted to serve his country. He wanted to throw everything away that he had been handed when America needed him. And the war came and the war went, and Tom graduated just a couple months too late to fight. So he became a fighter pilot in a time of the Cold War. Now, we look back and we think of the post-World War II years with such nostalgia. We think of the white picket fence and, you know, the kind of leave-it-to-beaver sort of environment. But we forget that within days of World War II ending, the Soviet Union became a very dangerous enemy. They started grabbing all the land they could. They started shooting down our planes in accidents. At the time when Tom Hudner became a fighter pilot, the Berlin airlift had just taken place, where the Soviet Union had basically blockaded the roads to Berlin. The Allies were supposed to share the city of Berlin. They divided it up. There was an American sector, a British, a French, and a Russian. And one day, the Soviet Union decided, we want them all. So they blockaded the roads into the city, and we had to fly our planes over their tanks to save the city of Berlin. The Soviet Union routinely threatened to decimate American cities. So people like Tom Hudner and his family grew up in a time when people worried about Soviet bombers coming over the polar ice cap with nuclear or atomic weapons beneath their bellies to vaporize cities like Washington, D.C. and like San Francisco. The years between World War II and the Korean War were not glamorous, pretty times. And then one day in June 1950, the North Koreans, who still remain an enemy to this day, charged across the border into South Korea. The China had already fallen to the, the communists, and they wanted... South Korea to be next. And then next on the chopping block was Japan. And maybe next was the Philippines. And then what was next? We'll never know. The other half of this story I should bring into the picture now before we go to the Korean War. And he grew up a world away from Tom. But he was at Tom's side when they went and they sailed into battle. His name was Jesse Brown. Now, Jesse Brown grew up, I always say, worlds apart. 
They were men from different worlds because they literally were. They lived in the same country, but they were from different worlds. Jesse was a sharecropper's son in Mississippi. And he grew up in the same time that Tom did, only he would spend his days, well, the summers, and when his school would let out in the springtime for their spring break, he'd be farming the fields. 4.30 in the morning, these kids would be up. They were 13 years old, 15 years old. And they would do this from sunup till sundown, Jesse and his younger brothers. They would farm under that blazing sun. And then their relief at the end of the day, their reward was they would go and they would swim in a muddy pond. And they would make as much ruckus as possible to keep the water moccasins on the banks because it was a snake-infested pond. That's how bad it was. And then they would walk home the dirt road and they would go home to do their chores. But before they got home, they had to look out because when the school bus would come, the white kids on the school bus would roll down the windows and they would spit on Jesse and his brothers. See, when the... When the black kids had spring break, their spring break was to work the fields. The other kids stayed in school to further their education. And that happened time and time and time again. It was an unbelievable place to start. Yet Jesse's parents would tell him, if you carry yourself well, if you treat others well, and if you're optimistic, you can achieve anything. And he also had this other crazy dream. See, Jesse would read by lamplight at night. And he would read popular mechanics and popular aviation magazines. And he got this crazy idea that maybe he could fly for the United States Navy. And maybe he could be a carrier pilot. And he would tell the other sharecroppers in a field when the planes would fly over, he would say, I'm going to be up there someday flying for the United States Navy. And they would laugh at him and they would say, a black person can't ride in a plane these days, let alone fly a plane, let alone fly for the United States Navy. World War II came... And in a way, the sharecroppers were proven right. The Tuskegee Airmen broke the color barrier in the Army. They became the first black fighter pilots in the U.S. Army. And they did it together. They did it in classes of 30 and 50, 75. By the end of the war, I'm not sure of the exact number, but there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Tuskegee Airmen, let's say 500, 700. And yet the Navy never cracked. There was never a black naval aviator. And the reason wasn't just uh, on paper. It was that the instructors had a deal. And they said, we will let no one through. We, We will not allow our club to be broken into. So Jesse Brown goes to Ohio State, and he spends two years there studying architecture. And deep in the recesses of his memory is that dream. He wants to fly for the U.S. Navy. And there one day he saw a recruiting poster. This is in the years just after World War II. And it said, do you have what it takes to fly for the U.S. Navy? Apply at your nearest recruiting center. Well, Jesse found himself nodding, and he knew his dream had come true. See, that poster would have never appeared at a school where they expected there to be black students. It wouldn't have appeared at Alcorn State. It wouldn't have appeared at any of the black colleges in the South, but it appeared at Ohio State. And Jesse was lucky he went there. And so he applied, and he in flight training, got very, very lucky. There was a flight instructor there named Roland Christensen. And Roland was a World War II veteran, carrier pilot. And most pilots didn't like the instructing duty. But he took to Jesse and he said, hey, I'm not going to judge you by the color of your skin. I'm going to judge you whether you can fly or not. And Jesse said, that's fine by me. Now, Jesse, um, he was a farm boy, of course, from Mississippi. So Roland 
was a farm boy from Oklahoma. So you could say he got very lucky. But also, we've been hearing from a lot of the pilots who serve with him, and these guys just love Jesse Brown. There was something about him, an optimism. And people say, what was it that bonded Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown? Because these two men were made squadron members in 1949, early 1950. They were placed together in the same squadron. And I'll tell you a little bit about their first meeting. Tom was suiting up in the locker room, ready to fly. And everybody thinks that this is going to be the new Maverick and Goose. You know, these guys are just going to get along and they're going to ride off into the sunset. Well, Tom's lacing up his boots and Jesse comes in and he says, I guess we're flying today. And he gives this awkward wave. And Tom stands up and he says, I'm looking forward to it. I'm Tom Hudner. And Tom sticks out his hand and Jesse just looks at it like he's never seen this happen before. And Tom is thinking, okay, what's wrong with him? And finally, Jesse shakes Tom's hand. And later later on, Tom leaves the room. And his first thought of Jesse Brown was, what an odd guy. That's their epic beginning. What an odd guy I'm stuck flying with. And later, Jesse pulled him aside and he said, Tom, I've got to tell you, we got off on the wrong foot today. There's a reason for it. He said, a lot of times when I would go to, through the Navy and flight training, I would go up to another cadet and I would say, I'm Jesse Brown. I'd stick out my hand and the other guy would just look at me and keep his glued to his side. He said, so I learned. I don't force myself on anyone anymore. If they're going to be friendly, they'll be friendly soon enough. And that was his attitude. What bonded these two men? Jesse was a married man. He had a young wife and he had a daughter. Tom was a bachelor. Not in the wild, crazy bachelor sense. Tom was more the introverted bachelor. He was in love with his job, in love with his career. Nothing mattered more to him than doing the right thing and, and becoming the perfect naval officer. They were bonded. They didn't hang out like buddies, but they were bonded because they were both patriots. And somebody actually pointed this out to me, a, a reader. They said, these guys were patriots. And I never said in the book that they saluted the flag or that they sang the national anthem. I thought, where did you get that? I'm like, you're right, but but wow, that's really reading between the lines. He said, well, think about it. Tom Hunter threw away a life of privilege to serve in the Navy, and Jesse Brown wanted to serve a country that wouldn't serve him if he walked into the wrong restaurant or bar. I mean, that's patriotism. And it was true. It really was. Both of these men didn't have to go to the Korean War. I found that to be very fascinating. When I started this, I thought, oh, well, you know, you signed up and you have to go. Well, when they were ordered to Korea in summer 1950, they were given 10 days at home before they left. So Tom went home and he saw his parents and his mother tried to talk him out of it. And she said, you can still go to Harvard, please. And Jesse went home with his wife and they talked on the porch and there was a pilot in their squadron who, right before this furlough, he went to the skipper, the CO of the squadron, and he said, sir, I'm not, I'm not made for this killing stuff. You know, I was, I, was, I was goaded into becoming a fighter pilot. I wanted to fly air-sea rescue. I wanted to pick up people. I wanted to be a transport pilot. I wanted to be anything but this, but my buddies forced me into it. And the skipper said, well, I don't want somebody flying my wing who doesn't want to be here. We're going into the war. And he said to that man, all right, you're staying here at Quonset Point. And that guy stayed there and he kicked around for a month or two after everybody else had gone. And eventually the Navy just said, go home, 
go home to upstate New York. And rumor has it he went and he drove a bus while their others went to the Korean War. See, Jesse had that last meeting with his wife, Daisy, right before he was shipping out. And he said to her, if something happens to me, I want you to become a teacher. He said, that's my dream. And I've taken out an insurance policy for you. He said, wait five years, draw all the benefits you can. See, he knew there was a chance he wasn't coming home. And so did Tom Hudner. Tom sat down with his dad before he left. And his dad said, can you stay, Tom? Can you get out like that other fellow did? And Tom said, we have to make a stand somewhere against communism. And it might as well be here. These guys thought they might be fighting World War III. And in looking back, I think they did fight World War III. See, the Korean War was fought on one peninsula, but it was fought between 23 nations. You had the Soviet Union. They drew up the battle plans for the invasion of the South. They gave the North Koreans their tanks, their bullets, their guns. Soviet fighter pilots were flying in Chinese-marked aircraft, wearing Chinese uniforms. And it wasn't until very late in the war that our pilots started shooting these guys down, and they would see Chinese pilots floating down in their parachutes, Chinese pilots with red hair. And that's when we came to know what was really going on. The United Nations went to the Korean War. England, Australia, India, all kinds of nations, all fighting on one peninsula. But before the end, there were 23 nations fighting over this landmass. And really, they were fighting for the future of the world. We had to take a stand. Let's fast forward to a place called the Chosen Reservoir. The Chosen Reservoir is in northern North Korea. And it's amazing. An anniversary is passing and the world doesn't even notice. 65 years ago at this place, this frozen place in North Korea, a Marine division was surrounded. Imagine if you turned on the TV tomorrow and on CNN you see, oh, 10,000 American Marines in Afghanistan are surrounded by 100,000 enemy fighters. It'd be a catastrophe. And that's what happened in 1950, right now. 10,000 U.S. Marines in one little valley were surrounded by 100,000 Chinese communist troops. See, the Chinese made a threat, and they said, if you come too close to our border, we're going to enter this war. And General MacArthur, the general in charge, we were about to steamroll the North Koreans out and win the Korean War, and he said they'll never do it. But the Chinese had a fear. Their fear was... If Korea was united, if there was a democracy on their border, they had just, the communists had just taken over China. They had just won their civil war. And the Soviet Union, this guy named Stalin, who's very much the villain in this book, he's a, he is the antagonist in devotion. Stalin told the Chinese leader, Mao, he said, if you allow the Americans and their allies to unite the Koreas and you allow there to be a democratic Korea, they're going to use that as a bridge to invade China. See, they're not happy with the outcome of the Chinese Civil War, and they're going to change that. What they're going to do to you, Stalin told them, they're going to get the troops from Taiwan, the nationalist Chinese, and they're going to airlift them into China. And then they're going to arm up the Japanese, your former enemy, your hated enemy, who raped China up and down for six years or more. They're going to arm your enemy, and they're going to send them into China through North Korea. And then the Americans are going to come, and they're going to take the war to you. 
And so the Chinese leader said, all right, we're jumping in. And so before you know it, the Chinese committed hundreds of thousands of troops under darkness. They infiltrated North Korea, and that's how we woke up late November, early December 1950, with our boys surrounded. The Marines surrounded in the east, the Army surrounded in the west. A catastrophe. So when we say it was a world war, think about it. China, the Soviet Union, and North Korea versus the free nations of the world. That was a situation when Tom and Jesse and their carrier pulled up off the coast of North Korea. The Marines were surrounded. They were freezing. It was sub-zero. Temperatures were measured as low as negative 30 degrees at night. Negative 30 degrees. And the Chinese would attack at night. So these Marines, the first night they didn't see it coming. They were in their sleeping bags. They didn't realize that the zippers of their sleeping bags froze from their breath. And so when the Chinese come in their waves of 3,000 men at a time, attacking 100, 200 Marines on a thinly stretched line, these guys are stuck in their sleeping bags. Or maybe they took off their boots to let their feet breathe. They couldn't get them back on. And maybe they grabbed their rifles and the bolts were frozen. Um, some of the rifles didn't work at all. And that's how desperate it was. You had these American boys fighting in the cold, being bayoneted in their sleeping bags, surrounded, hopeless. Back home, the newspapers gave them a name. They called them the Lost Legion. And they were preparing the American people for this destruction of an entire Marine division. But the Chinese forgot one thing when they invaded North Korea, when they invaded to join the war. They forgot their anti-aircraft guns. They forgot their air power. They just sent waves and waves, human hordes of men. And we had guys like this, Tom Hudner and Jesse Brown and their Corsair fighters. And so when their carrier pulled up off the shore, the USS Leyte, they went into battle. And on days, their unit would, the reports that we dug up when we were writing this book, it would say, we killed 3,000 today. Those were the numbers they were up against. But really, it was 3,000 of them or 3,000 of ours. Take your pick. December 4th came. Tom and Jesse were wingmen. Jesse was the flight leader. It wasn't the other way around. See, Jesse had more experience than Tom. And in the air, the man with experience led. And I've asked Tom many times, what kind of pilot was he? And Tom said, I would follow him anywhere. It was that simple. December 4th, they were patrolling behind the lines, hunting out Chinese troops, hiding during the day. Because that's what the Chinese did. They hid during the day. They hid in mine shafts. They hid under bridges. They hid in the thin forests. They tried to hide hundreds of thousands of men anywhere they could. They would even hide in the snow. They had a tactic where they would burrow into the snow and they would wait motionless. They would curl like rocks, and their uniforms were white, and by then they were soiled. And so they would hug their knees, and you would see a field of a hundred boulders, and they were men. And on that day, Jesse was one plane ahead of Tom's, crossing a field, when a group of Chinese soldiers, the rifles raised, and the bullets fired. They fired at once. Nobody knows exactly if it was 30 of them, if it was 100, if it was 1,000, but one bullet was all it took, and it hit Jesse's oil tank. Now, if it had hit his fuel tank, he might have been able to get 
back to friendly lines because he was 13 miles behind friendly lines at that time, 13 miles behind enemy lines. But it hit the oil tank, and the oil bled, and the engine seized up, and he was going down. And so Tom and the other pilots looked, they scanned the terrain, and all they saw were mountains bristling with thin trees. And someone spotted a clearing on the side of a mountain about three miles away, and Jesse steered for it. Now, without power, it's um, he crashed like a rock. That's the only way to put it. If he had power, he could have he could have controlled his descent onto that mountainside. But his engine seized up right before he came to earth, and he fell the last 25 feet in a 14,000-pound machine, a dead machine, a dead bird. And he hit so hard, the mountainside looked like it was covered in snow, but beneath the snow was sheer rock. So imagine if take you in this chair and we drop you take you up 50 feet and drop you straight down onto the rock that's what he went through and his plane hit and it broke at the nose it twisted almost to a 90 degree angle and it skidded and it stopped the engine tore loose it bounced down the mountain the propeller blades flung away the skin on the wings wrinkled and the plane came to stop in a cloud of snow overhead tom hudner and the others dipped a wing and they looked down And they saw the snow settle, and they saw that aircraft there, and they saw smoke rising from the nose. And the radio was full of chatter. They were saying, get out, Jesse, get out, get out. And then they were saying, is he dead? Finally, the canopy cranked back, and a hand waved. See, Jesse had survived the crash. But he wasn't able to communicate with them, because when he landed... He was so intent on escaping that burning airplane. They took off his helmet, and he dropped it down below his feet. And he took off his gloves, and he undid his, tried to undo his harness. And then he realized he was pinned inside the wreckage. He was pinned at the knee because when that plane turned, when the nose broke to the right, it smashed his knee against the instrument panel badly and brutally. And so he all he could do was look up and wave. Now Tom is circling, and he's looking down, and everybody's watching, because this squadron had a rule. And it's strange that that this was topic was even breached. What happened back in World War II, there were about two or three instances where a man would be shot down, and his buddy would land to pick him up. It happened in Europe with a P-38 pilot. It happened in Europe with a P-51 pilot. It happened in the Pacific with an SBD Dauntless. And there was a movie made about it called Fighter Squadron. And I think it was starring, I want to say Robert Stack. And it came out in the post-war years, and all these young fighter pilots watched it. Well, on an earlier mission, a pilot was shot down in a cornfield. And one of the pilots back, one of these young pilots, one of Tom's buddies, They asked the skipper, they asked a dangerous question. They said, sir, why are we, why are we out looking for this guy? Why didn't somebody just land and pick him up the first time? It was easy. He was right there. We could see him waving. Why didn't we land and pick him up? Because they'd seen it in the movies. Now the skipper, Doug Neal of the squadron, skipper was a a hard-nosed guy. He was a night fighter pilot, kind of like this guy in the second row. I mean, they're just, you know, you have to be a special kind of guy to do that job. 
and he had seen it all. And he said, let me make it clear to you guys. If anyone ever risks your airplane and pulls some sort of cowboy stunt, I'll court-martial your being recorded. But it was quite clear. I'll court-martial you, and your career is done. So here's what you have. You have Tom Hudner, the guy who loves his career, who lives for his career. And he's looking down, and he sees Jesse Brown there. He sees Jesse waving. And he knows Jesse has a young wife. He knows Jesse has a two-year-old daughter, Pamela. And he knows a friend is in danger, about to die in the most painful, terrible way possible. Tom didn't see Jesse's skin color that day. He just saw a friend in need. And that's when he said it, I'm going in. Those words had never been uttered in this sense before. No one had ever attempted in wartime what he was about to do. No one has ever attempted it since. Tom Hudner made a pass over Jesse, and Jesse must have looked up, and he must have wondered what is going on, because Tom flew low over him, low and slow, to survey the terrain, and he came back around. And with everybody watching, all of his buddies orbiting overhead, Tom Hudner cut the throttle, opened his canopy, he had dumped his ordnance, dropped all of his bombs, fired his rockets, anything to lighten the plane, and he came down, and with his wheels up, he made a carrier landing on a mountainside. And that's the picture depicted here. It was a violent crash. I think even Tom might have overestimated it. See, his goal was just to land, pull Jesse out, and save the day. And he hit hard. Tom hurt his back very badly. And his plane screeched to a stop. It must have been something for Jesse. Jesse was sitting in the cockpit unable to move, but along the canopy rail of his plane were three mirrors, rear-view mirrors. So we can only surmise, but Jesse must have seen, out of the mirror, this plane come to Earth. And he must have seen this dark plane hit in a puff of snow. And he must have heard it, skidding along the, the, the rock, screeching. The canopy of Tom's plane cracked, he hit so hard. The glass shattered his propeller blades flung. And Jesse must have seen this, this blue bird so far out of place just barreling through the snow. And he must have looked over and he must have seen it come to a stop alongside of him. And it must have been a surreal moment to see two planes sitting there on the mountainside, two men so far from home, uh, two men from such different worlds. And that's when Tom Hodner got out and he unbuckled and he slid down to the wing and he hopped into that deep snow to take off and try to save his friend. That's why I say it's one of the greatest stories of humankind. I don't even think, I think the artist helps us, but I don't even think it's possible to appreciate what that moment really represents, what he really did. Until there's a movie someday, maybe then we'll get to see it. But I had the pleasure that December 4th of spending the day with this man, Captain Tom Hudner, a man who intentionally crash-landed a plane behind enemy lines, behind enemy lines of 100,000 Chinese soldiers, not knowing if a helicopter would indeed come to pick him up and rescue him, not knowing if a Chinese patrol would get to him first, 
and walk right up to him and put a bullet in his head and then kill his friend Jesse, not knowing if he'd freeze to death that night. I think there's a good analogy, and I was often trying to figure out how do you put this in terms that that we all live. If you were driving somewhere with a friend in wintertime and you were going over a bridge and below is a roaring icy river and your friend's car skids off the bridge into the water and you can see your friend because you stop your car and you see the water rising and you see your friend struggling, about to drown, how many of us would pick up the cell phone and call 911 and call for help? And how many of us would drive our car off the bridge to get out and try to save a friend? It's a pretty sobering thought. On December 4th, at first no one called this man. No one came to the door. No one came to thank him. The day passed, largely unnoticed. And then at the very last hours as we were sitting there, looking at this artwork on the wall. And of course, I know the story, and so I'm just, I'm living a dream. But the world, it just passed by. We were concerned with a shooting in California. We were concerned still with ISIS in Paris. We're concerned with whatever Donald Trump said that day. The world had different priorities, but I won't say they were better priorities. Because I believe that this story, there's something about this story that we need desperately. A lot of people ask, how did I get the chance to write this book? And I often wonder that myself. Why did this story sit here? Why did it sit for 60 years until some kid living in Pennsylvania, moved to Colorado, decided he was going to write it? Why did no one really tackle this for that long? And all I can think of is that Maybe a great story waits for when the country needs it most. And I think it's fair to say when you look at the state of affairs between Americans, between Americans, we have enough enemies overseas. We have people that want to kill us in North Korea, in the whole Middle East. We have trouble in in the Soviet Union. We have the Chinese building islands in the Pacific for a future war against us. We've got enough problems. But when you have discord between Americans, I say that's enough to say that this story is needed now more than ever. So December 4th comes and it's about to go and I get an email at the very end of the day and the email is from a man named Commander Tracy Gendro and he's writing from maybe a carrier far off the, the coast. See, Tracy is the commander of VFA-32, the squadron that Tom was once part of when he was part of VF-32. And he said just a very simple message. He said, cheers to Captain Tom Hudner and Ensign Jesse Brown. We're thinking about you. Of all the people in the world, President Obama didn't call, you know. The local postmaster didn't come over. You know, the, the mayor missed it. But a man on a carrier far, far away, a man who flies F-18 fighter jets, who carries on the legacy of these men, and who will be defending our country probably in the days ahead. Maybe he's on his way to Syria right now. He remembered. And so our mission now befalls to us. Will we remember December 4th, next year? Tom may not be with us. He's 91. 
He has Parkinson's. That's why I brought him the milkshake. He can't eat solid food. And when that happens, you know, it's not good for you. So Tom may not be here for next December 4th, but will we remember it? Will next December 4th pass unnoticed? I hope not. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book, because December 4th has a lot more meaning than just an old Navy pilot sitting alone in his basement office. There's a bigger story to it, and I invite you to discover that. And simply, I invite you to, next year, remember that day and remember these men. Thank you. I'd be glad to answer um, some of your questions. I'm sure some of you have read the book and some may read it in the future. Um, if I could, um, just if anyone has anything, raise your hand and um, I'll try my best to answer it. Yes, sir. Well, that is a great question. Um, the question was, how did Jesse die? Or is he still alive? And I think some questions are better left unanswered. <laughs> and maybe the better question is, yeah, how did Jesse live? And that's, uh, that's one of the things that I'm absolutely enthralled with. Um, I'm from central Pennsylvania. I grew up, there wasn't a single African-American in my high school. Um, and my hero is, uh, is, is him, is, is Jesse. And that's all I, I need to say. And I think you'll feel the same way once you get through 445 pages. <laughs> Anyone else? Uh, okay, so you'd like to know if there's going to be a movie someday. The question is, when will the devotion movie be made? Well, um, the answer is um, my agent had taken the book to um, to a big producer, a producer who made uh, – well, he's made some pretty big movies. And uh, and he said, all right, here's the, here's the idea. We're going to get the guy from uh, – let's just say the guy from the movie. It's kind of like a Rocky movie that's out now. Uh, you know, I'm not allowed to talk about it, but he kind of plays like Apollo Creed's son, <laughs> who, you know, like that, who used to fight Rocky. And, and they said, well, we should get him to play Jesse Brown. And they said, oh, you know, we got to get, we got to get, um, Zach Efron or Scott Eastwood to play Tom Hudner. And then the agent said, no, 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 they're too pretty. They can't pass for, for, for rugged men. Uh, and, um, then the agent turned to me and he said, all right, Adam, it's pretty simple. All we need, he said, we've got the directors listening. We've got the actors in mind. You know, we've got the big producer. They said, now just go make it a big bestseller, and then we'll make the movie. So that's where we're at today. <laughs> Convince people to care about a war they haven't cared about in 60 years. You know, no small feat. But you're here in this room, so we've started. Yes, ma'am? Do you have another book that I do have another book, and um, it's... <laughs> It's a story that, um, you know, I hate pitching it because people just say, oh, I love that one. It's so, it, it, they get so excited about it. Um, it's, I, I don't want to sell you on the next book. I'd love to sell you on this, but the next book is about, <laughs> it's about tanks in World War II. 
And um, if anyone's ever seen the movie Fury, starring Brad Pitt, Fury was a little bit of the comic version of this book, because this book is is real and it's intense. Um, it's the story of a young man from um, central Pennsylvania who grew up in coal country. His name's Clarence, and he became a tank gunner. He never wanted to be a gunner. He just wanted to load the tank. He didn't want to kill a soul, and he's fighting his way through Europe, but all their gunners were getting killed, and the whole crews were getting knocked out. One day, they said, you're the gunner now, and they found out this guy's really good at being a gunner, and... So they say, hey, we just got this new special tank, and there's only a few of them in the European theater. We're giving it to you. And so this kid from coal country, Pennsylvania, is now given the special tank, and they say, oh, by the way, you're now leading the charge into Germany. So at 23 years old, he's leading the American army into the heart of Germany toward the city of Cologne. Cologne, of course, has this magnificent cathedral and... It was a city that had been bombed into rubble. It was just a moonscape. It was a hellish place, and it was about to be the first urban battle for the army in World War II. Now, on the other side was Gustav, a young German tank gunner, barely five foot tall, little blonde-haired kid, quiet, never, never heard a flea. And he's in a German tank as a gunner being sent to defend the city of Cologne. And Gustav is sent into the city with two other tanks, so there's three of them now in the city of Cologne. The American army is coming, led by Clarence, and the Germans blow the bridge behind him. And, Cla and Gustav's been sent there to die. So Clarence comes into the city, Gustav's in the city, and there's a girl named Katerina Essler, a German girl. This is all a true story. And Katerina, her boyfriend's on the other side of the river, and she just wants to escape Cologne. And I don't know why she waited so long, but she decides to escape on the day of the battle. And so she gets in a car with her boss, and they're driving through the streets, and Clarence is coming down the road in his tank, and Gustav pulls around a corner in his tank. Clarence and Gustav start shooting at each other, and Katerina drives right through it. And so the story is about three lives colliding in the city of Cologne on one day in the middle of the battle, and how it would shape these enemies for the rest of their lives. And it's going to be a, a very powerful book um, in about two years. <laughs> You'll see me then. I won't have any hair left, <laughs> you know, or what? It'll be salt and pepper. But um, but that's next. And the book is the working title is Spearhead. I also like to call it Cologne, but um, I don't know if if people will associate that title <laughs> with the stuff you spray on yourself. <laughs> yes, sir. Well, thank you. Secondly, I would like to ask if you have uh, experience flying or experience with the, the aircraft of the era, and could you tell us about those experiences? The question is, um, do I have experience flying or with the aircraft of, of that era? And uh, yes, a little bit. Um, I never took devoted that time to go get the pilot's license. Back when I was young, uh, I was interviewing veterans. That was my thing. Um, it was expensive, and it took it took time. So... I never got the pilot's license, but I've been fortunate. I've had the chance to fly a B-17 bomber. So when I was writing the Higher Call book about a B-17, I look back and I remember what it was like to turn that massive machine, what it's like to turn a four-engine bomber, what it feels like, and what Charlie Brown felt. And then when I talk to Charlie, I can say, hey, Charlie, da-da-da-da-da. 
I've always felt that, you know, you can write history books like most historians do. Mounds of papers all around you. You just take other books and you kind of, you know, rewrite them and you never leave your armchair. But my attitude has always been, if you're writing about young men who were asked to perhaps give their lives, who put their lives on the line and who sometimes made that sacrifice, the least you can do is go as far as you can to give that experience to the reader. If you're just a, a writer, a lackey, a tag along, which in many ways you are, you're following in the footsteps of great heroes. The least you can do is step into their boots for a day, a week, a minute, and try to understand a little of what they've seen. So in 2008, I think, I went briefly to Iraq just to see what it was like for it to be a soldier, to tag along with them. Um, we had the good fortune of going to North Korea to write this book. My mom didn't like it. She wouldn't call it good fortune. <laughs> she, um, she and my sister really panicked because um, they got a call from the State Department, I guess, a couple of days after we left. And the State Department knew exactly where we were. And they said, hey, tell your brothers uh, if they get in trouble, go to the Swedish embassy because the United States doesn't even have an embassy there. So we went to North Korea for this book. And um, devotion, we logged some miles uh, to write about the scenes in Sicily. We went to Sicily to write about the scenes set in Cannes, France. We went to Cannes to write about the scenes set in North Korea. We went to China and then into North Korea. I went to San Diego to write the bar scene. I went to Tom's home in Massachusetts and Jesse's fields in Mississippi. We logged some frequent flyer miles for this one, but that's um, that's the least we can do for a story this good. Yes, sir. How did you discover the story? This story, um, I did. How did I discover this story, uh, devotion? Well, for the longest time, I worked as a magazine writer. Um, my brother and best friend and I, we had started a small magazine when we were young about veteran stories. And I heard snippets of this story and that story and, and so many great ones. And this one was a legend. It, it was a legend. The guy who crash lands a perfectly good aircraft to save a friend. It was 2007 when I was attending a veterans history conference in D.C. So just there interviewing guys, you know, doing the journalist thing. We were about to go home. It was a Sunday morning. The conference was over. And across the hotel lobby, I saw him sitting there. It was Tom Hudner. He was sitting there reading his newspaper, his briefcase at his side, wearing a blazer, waiting for his car. And uh, I, I, I knew a little bit of what he had done. But I was hesitant. This guy's in the, a Korean War veteran. I'd never cared about the Korean War. I'd never tried to care about the Korean War. I didn't know who we were fighting or where or when. I didn't realize that the greatest generation fought two wars. When you think about it, they fought World War II, and then they were called back for an encore. Tom was the greatest generation. Jesse was the greatest generation. Their airplane was built in 1943. The bullets they were firing, you know, were minted in 1945. They were wearing the same uniforms, practically. The greatest generation fought two wars. And so finally, once I was able to to get past that trepidation, I went over and asked Tom, I said, sir, can I tell your story for my magazine? He handed me his business card. He said, why, sure. And that day he handed me the keys to this beautiful story, much more than a magazine piece. You should play Tom in the movie. <laughs> <laughs>
Oh, the statement will thank <laughs> You know, I, I actually had a role. The, the statement was I should play Tom in the movie. I'm saying that for the good of the recording. Um, I actually do, do have a role in mind um, reflecting my, my stature. Um, see, Tom and Jesse used to walk through the mess hall because that, they would suit up to fly and they would walk through. And, you know, sometimes they'd be hungry before mission. And so I think I should be the guy cutting the peanut butter sandwiches, you know, and, and saying, you know, Captain Hudner, here's yours, four squares and, and some brown. I cut the crusts off yours like you like it. That, that I think will be my role um, if I can convince him of it. Um, but but it's it would be a wonderful movie. And, um, you know, I, I, we're, we're certainly fighting for it because it would reach new generations. There are, there are generations that will never pick up a book. And this story is, is too good to just... The younger ones are the ones who need it the most. You know, let's be honest. There's a lesson in, in these two men. When you go on the road to talk about a book, you have to think about why you wrote it. And usually you just do it out of how you feel about it. You don't really think about it. People say, what was so great about Tom Hudner? What, was, what did they mean to you? I think one of the great things that draws me to their generation and to them as people is, is one word. It's selflessness. The act itself says everything. What kind of man crashes a plane to save a friend? Selflessness. What kind of man wants to leave his young wife and his daughter? He's already a pioneer. He's already done things that no one else has done. He's got his happily ever after right in front of him. He's done his years at Ohio State. What kind of man leaves that to go fight and maybe die in a war. That's selflessness. And I think everything about our society and the direction we're going, it's the opposite. We're going in a direction of, look at me, look at me, you know, how many likes can I get? How many friends can I collect? How can I pretend to be a celebrity? Oh, you know, let's, let's go to a baseball game and let's take pictures of ourselves. You know, because you're sitting in, in a baseball stadium and you pay $25 for seats. Yeah, let's take some photos. <laughs> You know, that's, that's the future, and we need to avert that future because that future doesn't win wars. And that future will not win the next war. And that future, those people, they don't think there's going to be another war. But let me tell you, we're living 1950 all over again. And as I wrote this, I discovered it. You know, my, my brother Brian, uh, who's here with us, he does the research. So he brings me these great facts. And when you look at it, you got this guy named Stalin marching all over Europe, you know, you know, having his, his soldiers fight, but, but saying they're volunteers, you know, they're invading you, you know, Putin, look at him today, invading the Ukraine. Oh, they're not our soldiers. They're, you know, they're little green men, they call them. You know, we've got an, we've got a dangerous adversary positioning itself for a future war, building its Navy backup, building its nuclear arsenal. You've got the North Koreans with their nuclear weapons, and you've got the Chinese expanding into Asia, preparing to guard their turf. We're in 1950 all over again, and it can happen again. And, um, yeah, history repeats itself. Amen. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, I... Um, I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and there's um, some people far more interesting than me 
um, that if you'd like to speak with them after the event, uh, as I told you, we have a Corsair pilot sitting here in row two. We have a B-17 pilot right here in row one. We got an F-15 pilot in the back in the gray gray sweater. You know, history's all around us. Uh, it's not just in the pages. And if there's any outcome, I hope, that this book will achieve is that when you see somebody someday with a hat, a ball cap that says Korea on it, you'll walk away and maybe you'll shake that person's hand, but you'll know what they fought for and you'll know that it mattered. Thank you so much for your time. That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Fode, and we have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.